What's happening? Welcome to Wong Notes Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Wong. I'm fresh off the high of Newport Jazz Fest right now. I'm not going to lie. I just got back from Newport Jazz, had a little double header with the Corey Wong band, and then also Fearless Flyers. It was a blast. Then afterwards, I got asked to play at the uh, donors and fundraising gala thing. They're like, oh yeah, there's a house trio. Antonio Sanchez on drums, Christian McBride on bass, Sullivan Forner on piano. I mean, are you kidding me? It's insane. I saw Pat Metheny with Christian McBride and Antonio Sanchez several times. Antonio is one of my favorite drummers. It was amazing to play with them. Not going to lie, though, I was a little intimidated. Kind of coming into a jazz world with the top jazz cats. And look, I can play jazz. I can like be impressive in that if I have to, but I don't feel like I have a ton of really compelling things to say in the trad jazz realm. So I was a little out of my element, but I kind of uh, catered the music to my favor and we had a blast and it was fun. But I'm just excited to share that with you because I'm so stoked that I got to play with some cats that I really look up to. Today on the podcast, we got Derek Trucks. Let me say that again. Today on the podcast, we have Derek Trucks. My goodness, I can't believe it. Derek Trucks is insane. One of the baddest guitar players, musicians ever to play on the planet. His expressiveness when he plays is out of this world. I don't know that I've ever heard anybody play that expressive on the guitar. Very interesting thing that he does, plays an open E, Obviously, a common thing for slide players, but even without a slide, he plays an open E. Gets some very interesting chord voicings and some interesting kind of language and lines that you wouldn't normally get just from playing an E standard. Admittedly, I haven't really messed around with it much. I like open D. I guess it's the same concept, just a whole step higher, but I think it's pretty cool. I'm gonna, I'm gonna explore the territory a little bit especially after hearing Derek talk about it in this interview. I'm super stoked about the interview. It was great. What do you cast have coming up? I hope you all have some gigs or some session or something you're writing that you're excited about. What am I excited about? I'm going back out on tour. I just announced a new tour this fall. I'm going out West Coast, U.S. tour. That's going to be with Sierra Hall and Robbie Wolfson of Ripe. And of course, my full band, It's going to be slamming. Tons of new material, tons of different tunes. We got, it's going to be sick. I'm bringing out production and all that too. Stepping up my game, you know, I'm stepping it up. Then, winter. This winter, going out Midwest East Coast Tour, special guest Victor Wooten is coming with me. Oh, Sonny T's going to be there too. Don't worry about it. But we're going to get some three three bass hits in on that. We're going to have to. And Truesdale is opening up. So I'm super stoked about that tour. And uh, I'm there's two shows in particular. The Ryman in Nashville. The Beacon in New York City. Very excited about those venues. Very fun venues. Insane venues. Super stoked. Check it out. Right now there is a pre-sale. Pre-sale, which means it's an artist pre-sale. There's a thing. You can look at my website. The, the tickets are like they're a little bit cheaper for you. There's less fees if you buy it on the pre-sale. And Lord knows, everybody's trying to stack fees on all the tickets these days. So get the pre-sale, get in on it, and you'll be set. I'll see you out there. Look, I'm not gonna hold this up any further because Tarek Trucks is on the show. You know this. 
You saw his name. You're probably looking at his name if you're looking at the screen right now, because that's the title of this episode. And you've heard me say it two times already before this. Let's hit it. Derek Trucks. Hey, you guys know about DistroKid yet? If you are an artist, musician, somebody who's trying to get your music on Spotify, Apple Music, all of those things, DistroKid is a digital distributor that can get your music on all of those platforms. It's the easiest, fastest way to do so, with accounts even just starting at $19.99 a year per artist. So for me, I have several albums out. I just pay one amount for the year. For all the Corey Wong albums, I just pay one amount, and DistroKid takes 0% royalty. 100% of the royalties come straight to me. Or you use their Teams feature where you can dedicate a certain percentage to one member of your band, a certain percentage to the other, or one of your collaborators. I do this sort of thing, it works amazing. DistroKid is who I use for my albums and it has worked great for me. The stuff gets up there fast. They have a smart ISRC thing. I don't have to worry about coming up with my own codes, registering a lot of the stuff. They just have that. And they also have these really cool design tools. If you are not very design savvy, they'll help you come up with assets for social media and other things to help promote your album. And if you want to use them, you can use my VIP code. Just go distrokid.com slash VIP slash Corey Wong and you get 30% off. How about that? Check them out, DistroKid. All right, let's hit this episode. Derek, thanks so much for being with us, man. It's such a treat to have you on. Yeah, it's good to be here, man. Good to see you. The last time I saw you in person, I was watching you record your Layla album at Lockin. Wolfpack played right in front of you guys. Yeah, yeah. And that was incredible. I watched that whole thing side stage, just <laughs> mind blown. And Theo, he and I are just like nudging each other the whole time. Like, oh my gosh, this is happening. And then you put it out as an album and I was so excited. Yeah, you know, we weren't planning on making a record from that. But when uh, we had a lot of time on our hands during the lockdown and we just started listening to tapes and uh, we have this old Neve console and we felt like throwing something up on it just to just to work it out. And uh, that those tapes sounded really good. And, uh, you know, Sometimes you do a show like that and it feels good and you go back and listen and it doesn't live up to uh, the memory of it. <laughs> but, yeah, totally. But but this one, as it was going down, it it just kept it kept on coming and it kept feeling right. And uh, so, yeah. so we mixed it and uh, decided to go ahead and put it out there. Do you feel like you're able to express yourself better in live albums or studio albums? A lot of times live feels that way, but I've, I feel like more and more the studio is just a different avenue. I feel like you can dig into things that you could, that's hard to tap into live. Some of the subtleties and, uh, um, I feel like, I feel like there's a place for both. Um, early on, I hated making records and live was all that I cared about. Um, but that, that kind of changed along the way. We did this record, um, this uh, producer named Jay Joyce and it was kind of a home studio he had outside of Nashville and I think that was the first time I really loved the process where I felt like he would he would wear this miner's light on his head and it just I felt like we were just getting into it every day. We were just going yeah. to work and kind of deconstructing songs and building them from the ground up and just things that are hard to pull off live where live you're you feel like you're having to bring people along with you and make sure everyone's locked in at all times. Where in the studio you you can fall on your face a few times and it doesn't matter as long as everyone everyone's attitude stays right so i i love that process and uh and then we built a studio and i i, I just love it out here so 
Do you feel like you've gotten your best solos that you've ever played live or in studio? I feel like there's a few moments on on record that I feel like hold up pretty pretty well. Yeah. And again, it's the subtle stuff usually. It's the Yeah. It's it's just the little microtones and things that maybe when you're trying to get over a band live that uh, are a little too muscular or something. Sure. Um, but there I mean there's definitely times whether it's with this band or um back in the Almond Brothers days with my uncle playing behind me where you tap into some energy that it feels like you you could you know blow walls down or <laughs> yeah. take a roof off a place so um but yeah I, I we we recorded an instrumental on this new record that I've I've felt that we kind of tapped into that energy a little bit for the first time in the studio. Yeah. Um, where we listened back and it it felt urgent to me. It felt like we were mm. we were just grabbing onto the thing. So um yeah. I, I, f- I feel like the further we get down the road, the more the line is getting blurred on what I enjoy more, um, which I which I like. That's cool. Yeah. Cause it hasn't always been that way, that's for sure. Yeah. Did you guys try so for those that are listening that are unfamiliar, I will, of course, have done an intro talking about the album. Ex- extremely ambitious project, and I'm so stoked about it. Most people at this point have heard some of the releases. I have the fortunate, well, I have the fortune of being able to hear all four of the the albums that or the all four parts that make up this entire album. Quite an ambitious project. Did you guys record this thing all live in one room? I've seen some videos where there it looks like there's some stuff recorded live in a room, some stuff differently. Like, what was your approach to making this record? This was during the lockdown. As soon as we could get people tested, they would just come. The core of the band just came down to our home and studio and just lived with us for weeks at a time. Yeah. So it it felt like the early days when you're first getting going. You know, there was no gigs in sight. I mean, we had yeah. 20 months without a a proper gig, and so the, it was just a different feeling. But most of the stuff was recorded with um, kind of the core of the band, the six piece band in the room. Yeah. Um, we we didn't have the full 12 early on, um, and some of that was. Uh, you couldn't get flights, and uh, it was whoever was driving distance from our home. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> which was like the Atlanta New Orleans crew, Nashville yeah. Atlanta New Orleans crew. So it ended up being a lot of the six piece, and then um, later on we could get the full twelve down here to to finish the record. That's cool, man! It is such a great sound too. You, I mean, I see the studio that you're in, and. Uh, when I interviewed Susan, she showed me around some of the studio. It looks <laughs> amazing. It's like you guys have this incredible spot that just, I mean, whoever's engineering, mixing, it sounds so organic, but you hear, like you're saying, all the nuances, hearing all of the details, the arrangements, because there's so many people in the band, it's just, there's so much happening and the sound is incredible on those albums. Cool, man. I mean, I, f- I feel like we're, the more we work in the studio, the more we learn uh, how to pull the sounds out of this band the right way, and the and and to make it feel like it sounds in the room, and to make it feel like the band feels. And uh, yeah, um, you know, and we've this band formed in this studio. The first time we all played together was in this room. So there's a kind of a magic to that too. It's it's kind of home base for us. Um, and every record we do, we just you know whatever whatever they'll they whatever studio time we can charge <laughs> just feeds a studio yeah and it'll be another microphone or another tube compressor or a studer <laughs> another tape machine in the corner or we just yeah. it just kind of feeds itself and every record gets a little better 
we we try to reimagine every record we do. We will we'll strike everything on the floor and just come in and spend some time looking around and thinking, you know, how do we want to record the drums this time? It's two drummers. Like how, how, how can we capture what we're feeling on stage? And so, you know, it's a work in progress. You're always, you're always kind of, um, tweaking things and working around the edges. Um, but you know, we have an old mid seventies Neve console in there and, um, you, these things, the more you work them, the better they sound. And you, you really do have to learn, you know, where to kick it and where to, yeah. <laughs> like where, um, and Bobby T's our engineer is incredible. He, he's, he helped build this studio, him and his father. So he knows it in and out. And, uh, it's a, it's a special place. That's great. That's great. I have a question about artistic vision for the band. So obviously with your albums, you have a vision, you have an idea for what you want to do. But I think a little bit broader is what I'm curious about. So obviously you have your style and you have your background of all the stuff that you've done with the little more fusiony Indian Raga, the all the the Allman Brothers background, Susan's background with all of her music, solo stuff and everything. And when you guys come together, there's a really cool to me it seems like an intentional vision where it's a meeting of kind of the jam space, the blues space, the just general roots, rock. There's so many different things that are, there's so many boxes being ticked. I'm wondering how intentional you guys are about feeding different parts of your audience or different parts of your fan base. And if there's any, any thought that goes into that, or if it's just, this is the music we wanna make, this is where I came from, this is where everybody else comes from. Yeah, it just happens to be that. I I think more of it is kind of feeding the interest inside the group. You know, mm. when we put this group together, we um, early on it was some of the guys from my group. It was Kofi Burbridge, who was one of the geniuses I've ever played with, and yeah, it, it's all about making sure everyone stays interested and inspired musically. Mm -hmm. And I find with with this group, it's a lot of really creative people, and if you if you stay too stagnant in any one place, it, the group gets restless. And so yeah. it's it's about feeding the beast <laughs> with ideas and pushing and pulling and changing the set every night and um, making sure that um, we get to exercise this musical muscle in this one. And But, you know, I want to hear Susan do what she does every night. I want to hear her light. Mm -hmm. this thing up and and so it's it's a lot of that and, and some of it comes from my years of being in and around my uncle's band and realizing um from being inside of it for a long time that there was always this push and pull with the brothers with Dwayne and Greg Dwayne wanted to just light it up and stretch every tune out and Greg wanted Whip and Post to be two minutes long and this acoustic tune and, and it was this it was kind of this internal battle that made it this powerful thing and then my uncle is coming from um he he was a big western classical music fan and he's thinking just the dynamic range and he's got a timpani on stage and then you have jmo who was in otis redding's band and um but grew up just listening to straight ahead players seeing ed blackwell and all these cats and um so there's just all this music inside of a band um and i, I realized that that's kind of what i loved about that music and the stuff that that moves me is uh is you hear a lot of you hear kind of all of American music inside of some of these groups. You hear, you hear the soul. You hear, um, you hear the fusion stuff. You hear the the Indian classical influences. You hear all these these musics. But it's 
you know, it's it's your own take on these things. You're not trying to uh, you're not trying to go down these roads fully. Um, you, you're yeah. doing you're doing your interpretation of it. Um, but you know, it it takes a long time as a band to grow into that. Where I feel like you're you're fully confident doing what you're doing. You don't have to overthink it, and you're not you're not playing this music and that music. You're just you're just doing it. So yeah, I, I feel like we're finally getting to that point. Or the last few years, I feel like we're getting to that point. Yeah, I've seen, especially right now, we're in festival season. I see a lot of bands multiple times over the summer, or you know, sometimes friends of mine I'll go see them multiple times on tour if we're, we just happen to be same city, similar routing or whatever. Yeah. When you're in that sort of mode and you have songs that people really want to hear and which some bands do. And then there's like, I, I know within your music, there's the songs and then there's sometimes jumping points where there's improvisation built into the arrangement. Yeah. How much you, or what your approach is to like, I, I'm sure, you know, this thing is going to work on guitar. If, <laughs> totally, like yeah. this is going to work. I know it always does. Yeah. And and sometimes you probably have to lean on that depending on what the night is. But I'm wondering what your approach is to, all right, we play this song 40 times a year. How am I going to keep it fresh for me? How I'm go how am I going to keep it exciting for the listener knowing that some people have heard the song played by you 15 times that year and some people it's their first time ever encountering you as a musician. Yeah, yeah, it, it's a it's an interesting uh, path to walk because I mean we do we'll do these multiple night runs at theaters. We'll do the Beacon for seven nights or uh, the Warner Theater for a similar amount of time, and you'll see faces that are out there every show. You know, you'll see yeah. a group of people, and you know you have to dig into a hundred plus tunes over the run and uh, and and keep it fresh. But realizing that there's a good group of people that are coming to one show, and yeah. you, you can't just spend all the time way over here <laughs> on the edges. <laughs> um, so it's a balance. Um, but I think this band really needs things to feel fresh every night, and it it needs to like if we can't play the same tunes over and over, and yeah. if if a song feels stale, we'll shelve it. You know, we'll put it away for a while, or mm. or reimagine the the arrangement, or um, even if somebody's expecting this solo you hear on a record, like, you know what? Kebby's going to play it on tenor tonight. <laughs> the guitar is now a tenor saxophone, or you find ways to shake it up. Um, and sometimes it's fully reimagining a tune. Sometimes it's just uh, tweaking it a little bit. But yeah, I mean, these, we, we write a set list about an hour and a half, two hours before the gig every night. So we're on our toes too. And, yeah. and sometimes it only takes throwing in a song or two that, either you haven't played in a very long time or never played to make the whole set feel fresh. Sometimes it's just a little, a little thing that does it. Um, but yeah, that's the, that's the eternal battle with a band this big, with this many tunes to choose from. And also I'm not singing these tunes. So I also have to make sure that, uh, Susan or whoever's singing remembers all these lyrics and I, I don't want to push too far, you know, yeah. like, no, we can do all this. <laughs> like, wait, yeah, I'm not singing this. How, how do you feel about it? <laughs> so yeah. it's, you know, I'm pushing as much as I can until I realize that, you know, you can push too far with that stuff too. So it's, uh, I feel like the first few weeks when you hit the road, you don't have to think about it because everything feels fresh again, right? Yeah. All, you haven't played these tunes in forever. It's just, it's when you get into the the thick part of a tour where you really got to, you really got to uh, take a deep breath and <laughs> think about these things. Yeah. 
That's great. I mean, between everybody in your band, there's so much expressiveness. Between the the songwriting itself, of course, is at the core of so much of that, and the messaging of the songs, and just the the atmosphere that's created. But Susan's voice, your guitar is so expressive, and your voice on the instrument is such a singular, unique voice that you know. There's people that have played rock guitar. There's people that have played slide guitar, blues guitar. So many things for so many years. It's incredible, and it's it's. It's just one of those mind-blowing things when you hear somebody, it's like, wow, they're doing it in a way that's never been done before. To my to my ears. I mean, I'm sure for you, you're like, oh yeah, but it's just a combination of this, 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 and this, and these years of experience. For me, I hear what you do, and it's like, wow, there's you only sound like you. Nobody else does that. And of course, I hear people that sound similar or whatever that that quote unquote try to do that thing. But yeah. I'm curious how you formed your voice on the instrument and your voice as an artist because it's beyond just on the guitar like there's a lot of just guitaristic things whatever but as far as the way you approach music the way you ex- the way you approach expressing yourself on the instrument how did you find your voice and where are you in that relationship right now with your voice you know i i feel like i was really lucky early on to meet musicians that would make you feel comfortable being yourself. Um, Mm. And then realizing that there's a lot of music out there to tap into. Um, I mean, I was playing at nine, 10 years old and um, blues bands around here, incredible musicians, just old grizzled veteran musicians that have been doing it forever. And, and then, you know, playing with a lot of your heroes early on seeing um, Buddy Guy and John Lee Hooker and Coco Taylor and these people, when I was a child, but when I ran into uh, Colonel Bruce Hampton um, at around 12 years old, he he was the one that made you realize that you know there there are no rules to this thing. And he turned me on to Ali Akbar Khan and Wayne Shorter and bought me a Love Supreme when I was 12 or 13, and just put all this music in my head. Book of White, Sun House, all this music where. It's just people being themselves and and you just he didn't care if something was good or bad or how much facility you had. It was like did did it move you? Did it make you feel a thing? Um, was it mm-hmm. honest? you know what was the intention behind it? and I, I think always feeling that way and then always listening around the the more you listen, the more these things start seeping into your playing. It's not even a conscious decision sometimes there's there's times where you'll burn out. I remember, especially with the Indian classical stuff, there's this Ali Akbar Khan record released in the 60s. It was Signature Series Volume 2, but there's the first two movements on it are just the most beautiful melodies, and they just keep coming, and it's just melody after melody. And I listened to it constantly for years. And then I remember a few years later, we're playing, and these things just start leaking out because, you know, it just becomes a part of your musical DNA. And instead of trying to fight it, you just let it, you just let it in and it becomes, it, it becomes something, but it's, it's not nearly the same. I didn't grow up where he did or the way he did. I grew up in the swamp in North Florida um, with this music around me. And it just, you know, you filter things the way you do. Um, But I, I think having that mental freedom early on, combined with the discipline of doing it all the time, you know? Mm. I mean, I was I was doing 
hundreds of shows a year in mid early teens and it never stopped and there were times when as soon as i was out of uh high school and touring with my own solo band it was and then i joined the almond brothers and there's i was doing 300 days a year between my band and this band and you're just out yeah. hitting it and you're hearing things every night and you're you're learning and you're you hear things back parts of your playing that you've despise and you the more you hear it the more you can get away from it but you you try not to throw the baby out with the bathwater because a, a lot of your spirits in there too so you have to let the ugly stuff breathe <laughs> too so wow. but you know and, and i've i've only i think last five seven years um at some point with this band started kind of realizing that you can just let it be you know i, I think i overthought it for a very long time um but I, i'm starting to Especially when we make records, I'll kind of pre-hear what I think I would want to play on something. Then you get to it, and it always there's so much improvisation with anything you do. Yeah. Um, but I, I'm starting to kind of hear what I think I would do, or before I'd, I had no idea until it would happen. And I I think that's helping, especially with writing, um, where I I can kind of imagine what the band is going to be or what my playing is going to be um but you know even in that you you know it's it's a it's a constant push and pull with your sound with your facility there's things you're working on there's there's times where you're just like i need to just start from scratch <laughs> there's some days you feel like you could play anything you hear and then there's other days where you just want to burn your amp <laughs> yeah <laughs> so it's uh, <laughs> but I, I think that's the beauty of it you never get comfortable which is why it's uh yeah which is why when you see wayne shorter or somebody to this day you can just tell that they're they're still in it they're still yeah. eyes and ears are just wide open and you're you know you're reacting to the moment at all times yeah yeah yesterday for me was one of those days i just had to <laughs> unplug my guitar i was like all right i'm going outside man i'm going for a walk i'm done today <laughs> i know it well i know that place i mean and that that's one of the things i love about this band is the band has confidence like it it's a it's a good band and we 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 feel that but when there's an off night no one is smacking our backs like ever like we are yeah. furious like it is yeah, yeah to the point where i'm like no it wasn't that bad it yeah. was but <laughs> like a, but you know we got a gig tomorrow but there's a lot yeah. of uh when when we leave meat on the bone musically everyone is uh everyone wears it which i appreciate yeah. you know because totally you see bands sometimes that are uh you just feel the uh the mental high fives going on and it's like i don't want to hear that shit. <laughs> 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 like it ain't that good like occasionally we'll have those moments where something really happens and you've the you'll feel it as a band or individually you'll feel that a moment just happened but those you're just searching for them constantly. But there's yeah. a, there's a lot more uh, discuss with what we didn't do than <laughs> totally. <laughs> so. Well, and sometimes I get into the thing where I'll we'll be in something and we're going for a while. And the keyboard player, my friend Kevin, we played together since the first day of college. Yeah, and I'll like I'll kind of perk my ear up and be like, wait a minute. You're thinking right now, aren't you? Like I can <laughs> you know, hear totally. you think. I can hear you thinking, and That's then I'll like funny. kind of raise my eyebrow at him. It'll be like, yeah. He'll <laughs> give me that look, like, ah, all right, let's get out of here. <laughs> That's amazing. And then we'll, you know, take it on. But yeah, I mean, it's a beautiful place when you've been with somebody that long that you can feel those things. Yeah. You know, I I, I think about Kofi all the time because I, I just miss him and his playing was so incredible. He was he was one of those guys where. I think I was on stage with him for 
it must have been 20 years um, with my solo band and this group and yeah. in different situations. But I never heard that guy come from the same place. Mm. I mean, every night was just something that I never considered. Um, he was just a fountain of that. And I, I think that was one of the things that helped me grow the most was always wanting to play something that would tweak his ear or every night, like you're you're playing to hopefully get a side eye, like a yeah. positive side. You're like, just like, all right, cool. <laughs> Cause he just, he just had it. He heard everything. And it was just, he, he was, uh, I mean, he was playing as a child and was just after he passed away, some of his friends found some old, uh, newspaper articles of him. I think at eight or nine years old flute, a picture of him with Duke Ellington, like just incredible <laughs> stuff. I mean, he was just a genius out of the gate. Um, but yeah, when, when you have guys that you have that much history with, I think it really, really does affect uh, it affects your growth. I mean, it's uh, yeah. we're fortunate to be surrounded by a bunch of uh, incredible musicians. Yeah, and just hearing you talk about finding your voice, the way that, and just knowing some of the way that you grew up playing, it, it makes so much sense. It, it is so obvious in some way of why you are the way that you are as a player and the way that you found your thing. It's like. Of course, you had all these incredible influences around you that probably pushed you to be like, "All right, I gotta, I got. If I'm playing with these cats, I gotta yeah. make sure that I'm coming correct." Totally. And then also the fact that you're bringing up people like Wayne Shorter and Coltrane, and you're bringing up, you know, I'm sure you've listened to so many different things that are not just guitar. Yeah. So a lot of guitar players. I'm speaking to those that are listening out here. A lot of people, a lot of guitar players just listen to guitar players and then they just sound like a lot of other guitar players. Yeah. The way that I'm hearing you talk about it, it makes sense why you sound different because you're coming from so many different worlds, so many different instruments and bringing them to yours. Well, you know, I, I had a few moments along the way. I mean, of course, first starting out, it was guitar. It was the sound of Dwayne Amon's guitar on the Fillmore East and the Layla Eda Peach records. It was El Elmore James and B.B. King. Those were kind of the first three for me. Um, and then you find Albert King and some of those early Johnny Winter records for me. And of course, Hendrix is a guy everyone goes to. Mm -hmm. And then around the time that I met Colonel, I stopped listening to guitar players for a good four or five years. And it was, mm. it was all singers and horn players and Indian classical music. And it was, uh, you know, it, I got on a trip where it was trying to find any any recorded solo of John Gilmore who was playing tenor in Sun Ra's band. Like just trying to track like this holy grail stuff. You're just trying to find these moments of your favorite players. And then uh we were on the road with uh Government Mule early on and Alan Woody, who was an incredible character, and he would turn me on to some amazing music, but he gave me this uh C D of uh it was Sacred Steel. And it was Aubrey Gent. And this is this is pre-Robert Randolph era. Yeah. Um, but these are the guys that Robert learned from. Yep. And he gave me this CD without really telling me much about it. And I put it on, and the first track was Amazing Grace. And I was hearing this woman singing, and then I hear a pick noise, and I realize, no, that's a pedal steel, or that's a lap yeah. steel that I'm hearing. And that kind of cracked my head open, because I was in singer, horn player mode, no guitar. And I was like, wait, these are... We can do this. Yeah. <laughs> like this, I was already kind of hinting at it, but I was like, no, just sing, sing through your instrument. Yes. And then I would go, um, me and Todd Smalley, who played bass uh, 15 years and 
my solo group, whenever we were out west, we would go to the Ali Akbar College of Music. Um, and this is when Ali Akbar Khan was still alive. And you could they'd let you sneak into the back of the room for classes he was teaching. Mm. And one of the things that hit me early on is he would make all the uh, musicians take vocal classes if you were taking the instrumental classes. You had to learn mm. how to sing the melody if you were going to play the melody. And just that concept hit me because he's he's up there, one of the greatest musicians in the last hundred years. He doesn't even have a sarod. It's He's he's playing the drone on a harmonium and he's singing these melodies that are hundreds of years old. And there's 10 sitars and eight sarods and a few guitars and somebody learning these melodies on bass. Like he didn't care what instrument it was. Yeah. And, and his ear was so incredible. He, he would point somebody out like second row. There's how many strings are on a sitar. And he's like, you're, your sastra, it's flat. Like bring it. Like he could not yeah. handle <laughs> out of tune. Like it just would bug him. But the fact that he made everyone learn to sing the melodies before he played it was another kind of small epiphany. Um, but yeah, those are all things that kind of lead you to where where you are. That's great. That's great. You got a big band. I have a big band too. <laughs> I I have twelve people in my band. Also, you know I have well. Yeah. <laughs> How have you been able to make it work for so long? <laughs> Because well, you've had some people in and out. We, we yeah. don't have to go into that. But yeah. <laughs> just having a large operation, I, yeah. I commend you for doing it for so many years because I'm like a year and a half in and I'm tearing my hair out half the time. <laughs> I mean, it, it's, been, it's been touch and go along the way. I mean, it was uh, in, in the earliest years of this band, we wanted to see how long we could do it. We didn't know how long we could hold it together yeah. financially or otherwise. I mean, it's a... Yeah. Uh, it's an undertaking. Um, and then it kind of immediately musically, we were like, this is incredible. <laughs> like, yeah. We, we got to hold on to this as hard, as long as we can and just let's see what we can do. Um, and then it kind of gets its own momentum, but it's still, it's still tough. I mean, it's a lot of personalities. It's a lot of music. It's a lot of, you, you don't want to have musicians in the band that aren't getting to do what they do you know yeah. you want to make sure that you're kind of honoring the talent of everyone in the band yeah. but I, I think the the further we've gone along the the better we've gotten at understanding everyone's strengths and weaknesses and really leaning on um, the strengths and then I feel like the band has matured um, to a point now where no one's overly worried about their personal at bat or having, mm. you know, like everyone just wants the thing to work. Yeah. And, and they, and they know like, we're going to be doing this a long time. Like if I don't, if I don't get the hero moment tonight, I'll get it tomorrow night. <laughs> like it's yeah. like everyone knows that we're passing the ball around and it's uh and there's enough to go around. So there's just a general easiness about it now. I mean, the lockdown was tough. I mean, trying to keep a, a 12 piece band and, 14 crew members rolling without gigs for 20 months was tough. And it, it yeah. got, you know, we got down to the felt there for a minute. Um, but, you know, we're, we're lucky to be able to keep rolling. We, we started recording shows of, uh, or, uh, gigs here in the studio and at our farm during the lockdown and the, uh, our audience kind of came through and helped keep the band rolling. And we, then we made four records and, um, we've just been, we've been staying in it and, and that there was it was a beautiful thing when we finally got back together after that lockdown, and there was just a different sense of uh, gratitude and appreciation for what we do, and uh, and that we get to do it, you know. And I think yeah. we always try to have that, but 
you know, you do something long enough, you're going to start taking things for granted, no matter how much you try not to. But uh, you you don't get to do that for a good 20 months and you you get back together the just the hang and the personalities you you missed and then mm-hmm. you hit the stage and you have you have one of those nights that feels really really good and it it, it makes you realize what you were missing yeah uh i have a question about collaboration and playing with other guitar players playing with other people like you're talking about in in your band in my band there's so many incredible musicians that are that have so many strengths everybody can solo 10 yeah. out of 10, you know, yeah. everybody can bring the house down and same with your band. Pretty much everybody can just blow the minds of the audience and get the biggest clap of the night. If you give them yeah. the, the opportunity to do so. But when you're working with other people, I'm, and I'm also thinking about that show that I saw with Trey sitting in with you guys. And then, so for those that are listening that don't know, there was a, at Lockin festival, the festival that I saw Tedeschi trucks, featuring Trey Anastasio and then the Trey Anastasio band featuring Derek Trucks. In those situations, how do you set up a collaborator to do their best? What's your approach to that? And then the opposite is, how do you, how can you come as a collaborator and bring your best, but not overstep? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I find when it's the right collaborator, there's almost zero thought that you have to put into it. Like sure. there's yeah. there's certain players. Um, Doyle Bramhall is one of them. Luther Dickinson, whenever he sits in, you're just like this. I could do this for days. <laughs> like this is, yeah. uh, Jimmy Herring, just some different musicians I've played with along the way. Where um, it's just it's so much fun to play. But when you're bringing somebody into the situation, you're really thinking um, as much as you know about their playing. You might not. You're not going to know them the way they know themselves or like hardcore fans of them, but you kind of, what you imagine their strengths are, you just, you try to find something, a, a good bed to set for them where they can soar. And, uh, and you know, with, with your band or with this band, you know that if somebody, if you set somebody up and they're doing their thing, you can, you can push this thing across the finish line. <laughs> yeah. Like we could, we could get you there. Um, it, and with people that can get themselves there by themselves, it's just going to be, it's going to be a, a beautiful thing that happens. Um, but something you said uh, about not overstepping, it, it reminded me of this incredible story uh, from an Almond Brothers Beacon theater show. They, there was a lot of guests that would show up there. And then at one point it was all about trying to get, Greg Amon or Dwayne Amon or any of their heroes, people that were still alive to come yeah. sit in with the band. And one of Greg Amon's favorite singers of all time, it was Bobby Bland and uh, Little Milton. And so somehow he had never met Little Milton. So Milton comes out to a show and we're doing, uh, we're doing sound check and we play a few songs Then we do Stormy Monday and Little Milton played a verse and then sang one of the most incredible verses I've ever heard. It was so good that Greg didn't come in on his next verse. This is at rehearsal. <laughs> just like he just pinned everyone to the seat. Like it was and and so later that night we do the show and it was really good. But it wasn't that good. It wasn't what he did at Soundcheck. <laughs> so much so that I like in the dressing room with him after the show and I was like, Milton, man, I was great tonight. I was like, but that thing that happened at Soundcheck, I was like were you hold back a little at the gig? And he and he, he looked at me and he said, 
He said, Derek, I learned a long time ago, if you want to get invited back to the party, you don't show up the host. (laughs) And I I had never considered that. But, you know, not everyone's so good that we can decide, like, how great you want to be on any given night. But Milton decided, like, instead of just just murdering everyone on stage, he would just, like, just touch us up a little bit. (laughs) Wow. That's a really interesting concept. And it's, uh, but that's some old R&B stuff, man, where there was territory. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I don't think our scene is quite the same, (laughs) but, but there are situations where you sit in and you, you realize that, all right, it's here. We could probably go here, but is that, where we need to go. Like, is that mm. what should happen here? Um, there are times where I think leaving leaving people wanting more or not overdoing it is the call. Because we've certainly had people sit in along the way and you're just like, all right. Uh, <laughs> that's enough. <laughs> I think, yeah. <laughs> I think that's good. We get it. Like, all right. Um, but I, I don't, th- I think this is for you now and nobody yeah. else. So, um, and the band feels that, you know, and yeah. Uh, and those people, they actually don't get invited back. Milton was right. <laughs> How about that? <laughs> uh, you know, I hadn't thought of it that way. But, yeah, I mean, the people that you play with that you leave the stage feeling like that was an amazing conversation mm-hmm. we just had or that thing you did, those are the people you want to play with, you know? Yeah. And the the people that get two in their own world or if you feel like, oh, yeah, check this out. Like, no one, no one needs that. <laughs> You did yeah. do that on your own time. <laughs> Man, there is two that was two incredible lessons right there. Just the <laughs> the the maturity and humility and and just respect out of the Milton story. Incredible, and then just right? like the the brutal honesty of hey, this isn't about you. We're inviting you. We're inviting <laughs> totally. you because we like you. Yeah, but we, it's I, not about you. <laughs> yeah, totally. You know, a, another collaborator that I just remembered that the few times he sat in with the band, it's just been magic. Is Nels Klein? Mm. Um, Nels comes in, and I would have never guessed it would have been such an amazing fit. But he, those early Almonds records are some of his high water marks musically too, and he never gets to explore that area or not often. And so when he sits in, he's coming from a totally different place, but he he's able to kind of capture the energy of the band and just bring it. And yeah. even and when he's playing behind you, you can be solo and he's got his head sock on his amp and he's just he's just creating this just magic. He's uh yeah. we some of our favorite uh moments with this band with sit-ins. And and I remember my dad uh was at one of the Beacon shows when Nels set in. And my dad's seen everybody. I mean, he he saw Hendrix open for the Monkees. You know, he he was at the Jeez. Fillmore East shows. Like he uh, he he took me to see Miles when I was a kid, and Ray Charles all the time. Like my dad is a great lover of music, and yeah. when something moves him, it moves him to tears. And if something is not good, he's brutal about it. <laughs> that yeah. goes for us too. <laughs> uh, but when when Nell said in, he said in. We did a we did a Greg tune. We did Ain't Wasting Time No More and. Nels took the most beautiful solo that just coming from a totally different place. And and uh, I just remember how moved my dad was by it and uh, how unconventional it was the way he got us there. Um, but yeah, Nels is another incredible uh, player. Yeah, absolutely. Really interesting player. Totally, yeah. Yeah. There's something interesting about your playing, many things, but one in particular is the open E tuning thing. And not just 
Open-E, slide guy, because there's a lot of people that do that, and that's that's a fairly common thing. But the fact that you play Open-E without a slide, and there's a lot of vocabulary that's seemingly developed by you, and just unique things to your playing, where whether it be chord voicings or approaches to comping or soloing, certain lines that come out that to me, when when I hear it, it's just I think, oh, that there's no way that's standard tuning. Yeah, I would I wouldn't think of that. Totally. How what what was your approach to finding that? Was it purely utilitarian, just so you could take the slide off and play, or what was? How did you come across this? It it was a bit of a happy accident, you know. It was, I think I was probably. 10 years old, I was playing all slide and standard in the beginning. And then Mm. somebody showed me open tuning and like all the things I had been hearing that I couldn't quite get all made perfect sense in open E tuning. So, and then I just never really wanted to go back. And then fast forward a few years on the road with Colonel Bruce Hampton and Aquarium Rescue Unit. And um, we were traveling and I was rooming with Jimmy Herring and, and Jimmy is incredible human but a great teacher too and and he was really interested in the fact that i was playing in open tunings and he was like we should map this out like he would he would get out a notepad and draw the neck of the guitar and we would just take different scales different and we would just mark it and then yeah. just by looking at it find all these chord voicings you know you circle the the root notes and then everything else is there and i i kept those papers for years and just you just occasionally just pull one out and just fumble through it, all the combinations. And then you hear something that rings out and you're like, well, that's cool. And I would have never thought of it in standard tuning. And I've, I've had uh, those moments with other alternate tunings. It happens a lot when you're writing songs, you'll pick up a guitar in a weird tuning that you don't even know what it is. Like somebody will leave a guitar in the studio and some weird tuning and you end up writing a song on it because yeah. you're just looking for things that sound good and you, none of the stuff you know works. <laughs> and then yeah. you stumble across this voicing that you would have never stumbled across otherwise. So, um, And I, I enjoy the fact that playing an open E tuning, especially without a slide, that you're, what's standard and normal in your tuning is not standard and normal for 99% of the other guitar players because yeah. the boxes in standard tuning, it's there's obvious things that you will play because they're just begging for it. Yeah. <laughs> and, and those things that are obvious and standard are not easy to do in open tuning. So you so you don't do it as much. So yeah. it just yeah, it just puts a little bend on it um, um, just because of the way it's set up. So I I've once that dawned on me at an early age, I just kind of stuck with it and kind of fought through the uh, the limitations of it because there are things mm. that are just easy in standard tuning. Just regular chords are hard in open tuning, so you have to find yeah. <laughs> kind of workarounds, and then that becomes kind of part of your sound in a way. Totally. I am such an amateur slide player. I leave it to cats like you and Ariel Posen and Blake Mills. All right, if I if I need slide, I'm going to get somebody else, you know. But there's a lot of people who are working on slide. I myself five times a year pick up a slide cuz I love the sound and I just do it like it's like it's fun. Like if if I'm going to play golf or something, I approach totally. it the same way. Yeah. Like, oh, I'm You're just like, out I'm not here making the fun. tour, but it's fun yeah. to swing. Yeah, 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 yeah. exactly. Yeah, <laughs> we're you. just out here having it's a good me time. with drums or anything. Yeah, yeah. I got it. <laughs> But for those that are really trying to get into the slide thing, I- I'm wondering if there are just a handful of quick, 
yeah, here are some standard things that I noticed. Like for me, when I see funk guitar players and they ask me, and they'll 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 send something, they'll say, "Oh, critique my rhythm. What's going on?" Yeah, and I can know. And it's normally, it's it's like most of the time, it's first turn off your reverb, second yeah. play less notes in your voicing, yeah. just pick less strings, and yeah. third play more in time. Yeah, <laughs> play with a right. metronome. Yeah, 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 right hand. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So for me, it's it's normally that sort of thing. And I'm sure you get this question a lot or how can I improve my side playing? Is there like to me that when people ask me, it's those three things pretty much most of the time. Is there something that you see in a lot of slide players that you would just immediately say, if you correct these things, it'll get you a lot farther faster? Yeah, I, you know, I I don't know about correcting things, but the I always go back to like there's just a few seminal players that you just have to know, or it depends on what style you're playing, of course. Sure. But I mean, there's a handful of Elmore James solos that if, if you learn these things, it just opens up a whole world. And, mm. and it's, these are, they're not the most difficult things in the world, but it's about knowing about, it's about playing a melody with a slide and not just banging around and, and just in its intonation, it's the attack. Um, and then, I, I really think with slide, it's almost all ear. It's almost all ear training, and it's it's just it's it's realizing that it's there's a big difference between bending up to a note and coming down to a note. So if mm -hmm. you're there's a different feel when you slide into a note or away, and a lot of times people are just it's uh it's almost fear based. You're trying to. <laughs> You're not, you're oh, not I know. arriving at a place. <laughs> you're just like, oh shit! <laughs> you, you hear the, yeah. you hear that. So, um, I, I do think less vibrato in general is probably mm. a good place to start because that's kind of what you use sometimes to mask. I'm not sure where I am. <laughs> so, yeah, le learning to really pin a note and then the vibrato should be a, a choice. You know, there's a difference mm. between BB ringing out a note or other players, you know, there's like, it's, yeah. there's a confidence in those things and that, that should be what you're after. But yeah, I don't know about quick fixes. I, I do think no pick is a good place to start with a, uh, with a slide though. I think your, your hands and using your hand to mute the strings you're not using is oh, a simple, yeah. is a simple, effective trick just cause uh, you got a lot of meat here that you can just <laughs> keep yeah. stuff from ringing out. Um, but yeah, I think Elmore, some of those Elmore records are a good place to go. There's just, there's something, for me, there's something that just unlocked a, a world um, tuning up to open E or D and listening to some Elmore records and, and just, yeah, just getting comfortable in that world. And then, you know, everything opens up from there. Yeah. And then, I, then Ali Akbar Khan. <laughs> yeah. It's like, cause it's slide, you know, it's a, yeah. it's a unfretted instrument. It's your nail on a string, but the concept is the same. And there's melodies in there that you can mine for the rest of your life. Yeah. I, I love the, I, the, the phrase pinning the note. Yeah. That's one thing that I need to, as far as playing slide, I'm just trying to sound cool and sound good for the, five times a year I pick it up and I'm, I am that guy. That's just like, I'm going to just have the Leslie on at all times. I'm just, wait, I'm just, I'm, I'm doing the vibrato the whole time. Just cause it's like, yeah, it's somewhere in there. Right. The law of averages will oh, yeah. help me to play in tune. No, it's in there somewhere. I'm, I'm pinning that note somewhere in here. Yeah. 
So I am not a gearhead gear guy. I'm kind of cool with pretty much any amp. And yeah. I have my Strat and I'm I'm a Strat guy. Yeah. I can get away with other guitars, but I feel like my voice comes out in the Strat a lot more. Yeah. I remember at this festival, but most of the time with Wolfpack, I just say backline me two Fender amps, kind of whatever. Because I yeah. know every backline company has a couple great amps. It's a and, safe place. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I don't remember if it was this festival or something else in particular, uh, another one that I saw you at, but I had backlined two Super Reverbs. And I don't remember if it was this festival. You you maybe did the same or it was another one. I saw you playing two Super Reverbs. And for me, I got two Super Reverbs because I like it. There's not enough clean headroom in one. So I yeah. just put the amps on like two and a half and yeah. I like it just as clean as possible. And you had almost the opposite approach oh, where yeah. it seemed like everything, <laughs> both amps are dimed because you're trying to get all the muscle out of the amp. <laughs> I was like, that is so cool that we're both using the same thing for comp- and and both say like, I need this amp because it does this. And they're the opposite things. Well, I mean, it's kind of the best amp ever made, man. A super reverb is just hard to beat. It really is incredible. But yeah, I, I pretty much dime them. But I use the volume knob on my guitar. Yeah. Like, I, like I, you know, okay. it's, it's kind of no pedals going into it. And I want, when I amp the the volume on the guitar, I want to get that compression. But the the cleanness of a super when you're on about three or four on your guitar and about seven-ish, eight-ish on your amp is a is a pretty sweet sound too. But it's okay. kind of, it is two ways at the same thing, essentially. Yeah. <laughs> it's It was so funny to watch because I, <laughs> I remember awesome. thinking, he's doing, he's doing the, he has the same amp for the complete opposite reason why I do. <laughs> That's amazing. But I didn't realize, so the the volume knob, is that kind of, is that a big signature part of your the way that you approach playing in general? I mean, it's kind of the only piece of gear that I'm really that I really tweak on is like having the right volume pot in there because it has really? to be yeah, it has to be the right sweep. Like cuz when a lot of them you get stocked, it's like the guitar is off on, you know, there's yeah, not yeah, a lot yeah. of there's not a lot of gradient in there, so sure. Um, I'm I'm not enough of a guitar nerd to be able to tell you what's in there. <laughs> sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's just the one know, that feels good. Yeah, yeah, I know when it's not right. I'm like Bobby, what's going on? Here? Yeah, <laughs> he's like, oh, we gotta change this out. But yeah, there's something about that when you get that sweep where it's it's pretty even from zero to yeah. ten. That's that's where that's where a lot of uh, a lot of the sound that I'm going after is is hidden is in yeah. that is in that. I know exactly what you're talking about. With a super reverb, I like it because the tens, the ten inch speakers are really fast. And I yeah. with my fast rhythmic percussive thing, I'm trying to be like a bongo player half the time. Yeah. So yeah. I like the fast attack. What do you like about like why a super instead of a twin for you? It's the tens. I think it's the tens. And I think uh super is one of the few amps that are uh at two ohms. So it's just there's, Oh yeah. There's, there's almost no resistance between what you play and what you feel and hear, which is why I've always um, tried to go with zero or maybe one pedal between that connection between getting the amp to feedback just by leaning a certain way or getting a note to ring out um, that when you have, when there's too much interrupting the signal between here and there um, and that, I think that 
with twelves, I can never quite get it to to sing the way I can get the tens to sing. Okay. Yeah, I've, I've always I've always leaned into that. Even when with the Almond Brothers, when you kind of have to use twelves because there's so much more sound on stage, I always always miss the feel of the super reverb. Like I could I can never quite make a Marshall sound the way I wanted it to. Um, I mean, I I've, I've found places that got close to it, but um, that connection with the super reverb or I had Alessandro build me kind of a, a little more muscular super reverb that I use, but it's, I still use tens. It's always, it's always that. Yeah. See, I, I, I never have heard anybody else say anything about this two ohms thing, but I have occasionally used like a solid state amp and gone into the, the two ohm, like the, the super reverb cab, but my tech was like, you can't do this for long. It's going to blow up the amp or something's going to happen. But I was like, but it's my favorite tone ever because it's so clean. And it's like, how do I get this? And he's like, I think it's two ohms. I don't know. But so hearing you say this is interesting. I'm, I have never heard anybody else talk about ohms and really the way that it feels other than just kind of an amp. Yeah. Yeah. And and I'm always asking like why can't we have more amps with two? It's <laughs> like I'm I'm trying to get there too, and I've well it'll blow up. We're like well then let's get two of them. <laughs> we'll blow one up and then we'll fix it. Like, what's the problem? <laughs> or maybe we need, we'll probably need four at that point. Yeah, I I don't understand. I, like I said, I'm not super gear guy. Yeah. I know what sounds good. I know what feels good. Yeah. And I have my preferences and I have strong opinions. But that is one thing that I've always thought like if I could have a a solid state going into a super reverb cab. I actually end, I end up liking that tone a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, maybe somebody will listen to this and figure it out for us. <laughs> I would love that. <laughs> Call me if they do. <laughs> I've, I've been after this for years myself. Yeah. So you're basically no pedals. Yeah. I mean, uh, occasionally I'll run, uh, I'll run like some sort of, compressor or something in between some kind yeah. of some kind of sauce but i i usually just bypass it you know i usually end up not using it because with the with the alessandro it's a little more powerful and uh i don't want to have to run it quite as hard um depending on where we're playing in the venue i want to make sure susan can hear herself yeah <laughs> <laughs> i, I don't want to hear about that later yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well okay the other thing is I, I don't know where the 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 depth of your involvement in the guitar tone on the records ends or starts, but your guitar into the amp, any particular microphone or post-processing that you like or don't like? So one of the things we did on this record quite a bit, I, I would use a deluxe, an old Blackface deluxe, um, but I would usually run another amp upstairs with an old Echoplex, um, mm. usually a smaller amp. And just for some a little extra depth, and a, usually there's a FET forty seven and maybe a room mic on the main amp, sure. and then and kind of whatever Bobby is looking for with the secondary amp upstairs, but but sometimes we would use that uh, just a, a tiny bit of tape delay on a secondary amp away from the main amp just for just for a little fake room or just some other another space um we have this great emt this uh, plate reverb um that sounds great on almost everything so it's trying to find that balance between the the fender reverb and the plate um you know making sure there's enough air without it getting too uh washy um and then 
one of my friends, a uh, great musician who had this Capricorn band uh, in Macon, Georgia, back in the day called Cowboy, but a great songwriter, great guitar player. His name is Tommy Tolton. He gave me a old vintage Leslie guitar amp that you can just plug into any head. Yeah. With a, and it's that thing is incredible. So that that's one of the few things I used out outside of the the normal rig. And then I have this old Tweed uh, Deluxe, just one of those turn it on volume knob and tone two knob tweeds that uh just sounds incredible at about three and a half i mean mm. it sounds like it's about to explode um so i use that on a few of the uh maybe a few of the solos on the record but it, that's that's about all we would do um i mean every song you're tweaking it a little bit and then i have this old l double with a d Armin pickup like almost the old Elmore oh, James yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. pick up in an acoustic that I used on a on a few tunes too. It's just a incredible sound. It's a 1930s uh, black and white uh, Gibson L double O, and that D Armin pickup in it just gives it a gives it a thing. That's cool. That's great. I love that. Yeah. That, yeah, that pretty, was the answer I was simple. looking for. <laughs> <laughs> that's about no, that's, all there is. <laughs> that's a, that's about what I expected, but that's what I wanted to hear. <laughs> also, not what I wanted to hear because it sounds very expensive. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Well, in, until a few years ago, you could get those old LOOs for not too much, but uh, yeah. the world has lost its collective mind recently. I, I haven't hasn't been any guitar purchases or any anything much lately. For that yeah. <laughs> so. And also, even in the last 10 years, I feel like 15 years ago, I could go to like rural Minnesota and find yeah. some farm that had a, a silver face twin reverb and the it was just like some guy's yeah. niece was selling it. I, I, this is literally a situation I was <laughs> I, in. Yeah. The amp was $150. I was just, <laughs> are you kidding me? Yes, let's go. That just doesn't exist now. For better right. or worse. <laughs> the, the early days of Craigslist, uh, yeah. Craigslist were there were some finds. Actually, I found this guitar in our neighborhood a few weeks ago, and somebody found it in their grandfather's attic, and it's a 1937 National, and it sounds wow. incredible. So I traded them for a guitar that I had laying around here. <laughs> Amazing. But, yeah, it sounds... It's got a... This thing Woo. has a, a sound to it. But the old tricones, man. I've always wanted one, but uh, couldn't afford it unless it was found in somebody's attic. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, you could just trade for something you already got. <laughs> That's true. Very nice of them. Are you a vintage nut? Are you like, are you diehard vintage? You know, not with the gear I travel with. <clears throat> mm. I got into a. F it's it's just tough to bring a 1960s SG on the road and not yeah. worry about it. Yeah. Um, but I. You know, for old acoustic guitars, I like having one or two really nice vintage instruments. There's, there's just a different sound. Um, and with amps, I am. Um, mm. You know, almost all the amps in the studio are are pretty old, definitely older than I am. Yeah. But yeah, it's it's a mix of things. I, I, you know, I remember early days I watching this old Howlin' Wolf footage and thinking about Hubert Sumlin because his guitar sound was just so weird and cool. And I just... In my head, I was like, "There's no way you can make that sound with modern gear." Like he's mm. he's got this weird like Tiesco, like this weird offshoot guitar, and there's some amp that I'm sure came from Sears. I don't know what it is. It's just some. It's just weird gear, and it just had a sound. And then we were playing a festival somewhere, and Hubert was there, and we were sharing a dressing room, and there was this brand new 
Gibson guitar with like a something built into it. It was like this awful modern instrument and this amp with just a digital readout or just like space echo, like just what, just goofy modern, sure. Awful sound and stuff. And he picked it up and plugged it in and it sounded just like that video from 1965. <laughs> and I was like, wow, was I wrong? Like, it's just the way he plays. It's just in sure. his hands. Like it didn't matter what it was. So I, I go between those schools of thinking that it's, it's the gear and then realizing that, yeah, sometimes it's the gear, but usually it's yeah. just it's just not. <laughs> yeah, just, usually, it, yeah. The reason I don't sound like that person is because I can't. <laughs> sure, <laughs> so, I've had that realization we, several yeah, times. Yeah. Things we all have to deal with from time yeah. to time. Like there's there's no amount of money in the world that's going to make me sound like that. <laughs> yeah, Un- yeah, that's exactly it. <laughs> well, I want to end with one last question. This is one that I've been been more curious about recently. I want to. I want you to tell me what you think, myself, that I should listen to, and the the people who are listening to this podcast. An old album, old. That's subjective. Whatever your opinion of an old album is. Yeah. There, it, one old album that everybody should listen to, and one album made in the last couple years that everybody, <laughs> sh- or few years that everybody should. There's listen this to. besides your new amazing one. record. I'm not sure what year this thing was released, but it's. Uh... This is something me and Susan have been listening to an awful lot lately, but it's uh, Cesaria Avora. She's a, a incredible singer from Cape Verde, and and I think I think it's just a self titled record. I think it's the first okay. one. Is it's just her sitting in profile in a chair, but it's just it's a beautiful beautiful record. Um, that that's been in heavy rotation around here lately, and I just, I don't know something recent. We've we've been big fans of uh, the last few uh, Wood Brothers records. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the Woods and Oliver and uh, and Chris and mm. uh, Jono, yeah. but I, I really love the music that they're making right now. I feel like uh, I feel like it's a little old, it's a little new, and uh, I, I love the sounds that they're coaxing out of things and um, just incredible yeah. songs. If you ask me tomorrow, it'd probably be something entirely different. <laughs> but those are those are two that are in current rotation. That's great. I love that. The Wood Brothers are yeah. incredible. I saw them at Sweetwater 420 Fest in Atlanta a couple yeah, of years ago. Of course. And I, I got hip to them yeah. via Modesky, Martin, Schofield, and Wood, or whatever that uh, band was called. And then, yeah, discovered them. And they really do. They have a, a modern and a vintage old sound. It's They got a really cool thing going on. You know, and I realized um, after I was reintroduced to them, I knew Oliver when I was probably 12 or 13, and he was maybe, he's only a few years older than me, but he was playing with this guy named Tinsley Ellis, uh, a, a blues player, and Oliver was his his uh, second guitar player. And this was right at the time where I was just kind of over all the Stevie Ray Vaughan clones that I was hearing in every bar. And, and I just didn't want to hear any guitar players, but Oliver's thing was so unique and refreshing. And yeah. I remember even then thinking, really like this guy. And he wasn't singing at that point, or I, I, maybe he was, he wasn't in that group. But when I re-ran into him years later, it it uh, it was fun to realize that uh, that dude had a sound yeah. way back when. <laughs> so, and Oliver was one of the guys that um, ended up getting me on I think one of the first sessions I ever did was on a Tinsley Ellis record and Tinsley wanted Oliver to take a, a slide solo. And he was like, man, you should get this kid in here. <laughs> and Tinsley called me 
um, because of Oliver's recommendation. I must have been 14 or 15 at the time, but I, I, uh, I didn't realize that till later either. Tinsley told me that the reason I got called for that was uh, old was Oliver. So he's uh, oh, he was wow. helping me get work as a kid too. I like that. <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> And now here you're helping him get streams on Spotify by recommending <laughs> well, his album. <laughs> you know, one of one of the few uh, co-writes on this record was a song that I wrote. I I wrote this instrumental early in the lockdown, just acoustic guitar on the couch, and I kept hearing this thing. And immediately I thought of Oliver, so I sent him a a, f- a phone recording of it. And a few days later, he wrote back. He's like, "Man, I keep hearing this. Do you mind if I?" write some lyrics to this song Mm. and i was like have at it and he sent me back this phone recording and it ended up being i think it's on the fourth record it's uh it's called i can feel you smiling but that's a tune that me and oliver wrote together Uh, i think one of the only co-writes on the record yeah or outside of the band sure yeah yeah awesome well derek thanks so much for hanging with us this is an absolute treat thank you such a huge fan of what you do i love what you do look up to you as an artist as a guitar player so thanks for being with us well, let's uh, connect down the road soon, man. Good luck I'd love to you. That. We'll, yeah, I would love to, love it too, and I uh, appreciate you. All right. Thanks, man. Thank you, man. See you guys. There you have it. Derek Trucks. Look, you got to scope Tedeschi Trucks Band. You got to scope all the records. You got to scope all the stuff that Derek has played on because there's so many different facets to his playing and all these different projects showcase his voice in a different way. So I'm super stoked about everything he does. I've been doing the deep dive. I did I did a deep dive going into this interview and since the interview, I've also listened to a lot more and also just kind of listening to some of the things that he suggested to check out. So thanks for hanging with us. We'll see you next time. Peace. <laughs>